readers, writers, listeners. Welcome. This is the Page Turners Podcast, and I am your host, Miranda O'Brien, Miss South Dakota 2023. I'm an avid reader, a published author, and a longtime listener of podcasts. Here we go. This is the Page Turners Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, my goodness. I am just so pumped to be back for season two of the Page Turners podcast. I, you know, a little more than a year ago, I started this journey of creating this. And I could have never imagined that this is something I would actually do. And I say that a lot, um, having competed now for Miss South Dakota, going on to Miss America publishing a book, starting a podcast, you know, there's so many things that I just, I really never thought I would do, and now I can't see myself having not done them. And I just feel so lucky to be in this space with you all and have you all listening to these conversations that we're having with authors and literacy advocates and just really incredible people, not only in, you know, the South Dakota community, but across the United States. And season two is going to be jam-packed. I have been working on doing discussions and interviews for the last few months because the life of Miss South Dakota is kind of a wild one (laughs) in the best way possible. I am always doing something. And so I really wanted to stockpile episodes and make sure that I had great content to share with you guys. And I'm just taking a second to reflect on who I've gotten to chat with and who you guys will get to hear from, because that's what's most important to me, is sharing these conversations for you to hear, for the world to be able to hear and expand your ideas of how we can increase literacy rates, how we can increase access and education and representation. And a little more than a year ago, I think it was, I want to say probably July or August of last year, I did my very first interview with PC Cast. you know, this author that I deeply look up to. And every conversation after that has just been awe-inspiring. I sit there and I get goosebumps just listening to people talk about their passion for reading, and I hope that that inspires someone. But I'll get off my soapbox. Um, I'm just so excited. You know, season one had TikTok stars and New York Times bestselling authors and just I, more, more incredible people than I could have ever imagined. And season two is just as jam-packed. So I think we just need to dive right in. Today's episode, I really wanted to start the season with this person because not only are they an author, they're also a movie producer. They're from South Dakota, small town South Dakota, just like I am. And I thought their story was really incredible. And then we had this conversation a couple months ago now, uh, listening back to it, you know, listening back to it so that I could edit it for you guys and make sure that it was crisp and clear and great and all of the things on the behind the scenes end. I still just sat there in awe of the conversation that I was able to have with this person. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. This is season two, episode one, and today's guest kicking things off is Sean Coble. Here we go. Sean, thank you so much for joining us here on the Page Turners podcast. I don't want to give anything away about who you are or what you've done with your life. I want you to do that. So tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I think the highlights of my life, as I explain it, may not be the same as what you would say. Uh, my first pet was a chicken, which was pretty cool. Awesome. In, yeah, in Edgemont. Uh, I grew up in Edgemont, town about 500 people, but I'm sure every South Dakotan and every listener outside <laughs> is going to know. Um, town about 500 people. My father was a blacksmith and a railroader. My mom was uh, was an English teacher who took 10 years off when I was born to raise my sisters and I. And then uh, 10 years later, as I was coming into, you know, late grade uh, elementary and, and on to middle school, I had a 1.5 GPA because I was working on my skateboarding sponsorships and building a half pipe in the backyard. And she decided to, to bring the jersey down from the rafters and come back. And she was my English teacher throughout high school. And That's then awesome. there ended up, uh, I, I left Edgemont into the wild, crazy world of Kearney, Nebraska for undergrad, which seemed like the biggest place to be in the whole <laughs> wide world. And, uh, and then, then after that, I kind of started to shape my dream and put a title to it, which took me to California. I wanted to, to make movies. So I sold my car for the money to get a U-Haul and I put a motorcycle and the mattress in the back of it and drove to San Francisco because I didn't know they didn't make movies in San Francisco and I didn't know. <laughs> San Francisco was 352 miles away from Los Angeles because I had not consulted a map. And this this is exactly the same logic as if you wanted to work at Mount Rushmore. So you <laughs> moved to Sioux Falls. It's the exact same distance, hmm. 350 miles. But there, I, I had to figure it out. I was too broke to go home. I was living in that U-Haul for two weeks while I was looking for a single room to rent. When I finally found a room, uh, I had a roommate in my closet who was oh, wow. going to film school yeah so he would open the closet door he had a platform in there and then have to like climb over me oh my gosh. yeah and and it was it was very difficult but absolutely transformative experience i built a consulting company in tech and put a title to my dream of of making movies and moved down to los angeles where i attended the university of southern california to get my master's in the peter stark producing program and then began to tell stories as a you know job after that. I guess that's my story, but the most important part's the chicken. <laughs> I love that you opened with the chicken. I think that was kind of an instrumental piece of the story. <laughs> you can them to sit on your shoulder like a parrot, but you cannot train them to not crap on. Be advised. Fair enough. You know, um, with my job, well, my not my job now. So that's kind of one of the things um, with this podcast is I started it as a local title holder for the Miss America organization. So, was, you know, I would say that my day job was working in TV news. And then my second day job was competing and kind of doing my community service initiative and everything with literacy. So now my actual day job is being Miss South Dakota, which is a little different. But before when I was in news, we did what we would call six on the road, a live show that we would do. And we were in I think it was Hermosa, South Dakota for their county fair. And I was holding the chicken live on TV and it did. It crapped all over me. And of oh. course, my co-anchor, Jack Cottle, had to um, comment every five seconds until the chicken, <laughs> oh, that chicken crapped on you. <laughs> I love Jack Cottle. He's an, he's, he's an institution. He really uh, it's is. It's hard to be on your podcast and it's cool to talk to you. I am starstruck because I watch you. Uh, and uh, and so now here here we are. Uh, it's, it's a mutual starstruckness, if you will. <laughs> That's just because I'm orange and therefore there's a feeling of excitement. I Well, we, I mean, we're here to just chat, which I love, but I also want to dive a little bit more into your career, um, specifically, you know, a movie that people love and know. And actually I was doing some research before this and 
I, I want you to tell everybody what you're probably most well known for. But there's another movie that I want to bring up. Um, you did the Twelve Dogs of Christmas. <laughs> yes, I, I did. love that movie. You know, oh, you know the Twelve Dogs of Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I made the Twelve Dogs of Christmas because I had produced a movie right out of school, an independent film about a tall, skinny kid growing up in a small town in the Midwest called Napoleon Dynamite. What's and that movie? That's the weird movie. And uh, you say people love and know. I, I think they more know and sometimes love uh, the movie. But after I made it, we had this amazing experience at Sundance. It was a dream experience. We hadn't shown the movie to anyone. We were hoping that a studio would come get it. And nobody knew who we were. And we were on total lockdown. And like the, the Jared, Jared Hess, the director, was dry heaving in the bathroom through the whole first screening. He was so nervous. And um, And at the end of it, there was a standing ovation and then nine more screenings were set up and we sold the movie to Fox Searchlight and MTV Films and it kind of had its life but I brought it back to Hot Springs to show it to my friends and my teachers and have like the hail the conquering hero return party uh, I wanted to be properly celebrated for this genius that I was only a small part of and it was a hundred percent different than the Sundance screening like <laughs> nobody laughed and they were just like what is this and afterward, there was a reception and my friends were coming up and they're like, why, why would you do that? <laughs> like the movie, they're like, no, the movie's fine. It's weird or whatever. But why would you tell people? Like, what do you mean tell people? Like, why, why wouldn't you just keep it a secret? This, the movie's not about me. It's not a documentary. <laughs> but then that night, my mom, she showed me a picture in one of the family photo albums. And there I am standing 6'2". I've got a perm and I'm a redhead. I've got glasses. I've got braces. I am a ringer for Napoleon. Wow. It did not occur to me. So after I made that movie and my parents were like, what are you doing with your career? I wanted to make a movie that they would love. And so went off to make 12 Dogs of Christmas. And I love that you know about it. I love kind of the juxtaposition between 12 Dogs of Christmas and Napoleon Dynamite. Um, and I, I have to agree, you know, I think the first time I saw it, because my dad, um, I think, is who showed it to us, because it came out in, what, 2004? Yes, yes, very recently. So I would have been six years old when it came out, so I probably saw it a few oh. years later. Um, but I do remember being like, what is this movie? And now since then, you know, I've seen it how many times? Um, and I don't know what like actually qualifies a movie to be a cult classic. I don't know if it has to be older or, or whatever it is, but I think Napoleon Dynamite is kind of a cult classic. Some people just love it and are obsessed. And there are others who are like, what is this movie? <laughs> You're absolutely right. I mean, Rolling Stone did an article on us and in it, it quoted a website called Napoleon Dynamite is worse than genocide.com, which is a bit extreme, I think. <laughs> I think it's a bit over the line, but we were shooting another movie in Vancouver and we blew that article up and papered the entire back wall of the production office with it. But yeah, I mean, Napoleon, we hoped we hoped and prayed it would be a cult classic. We didn't think it would be a blowout. And like the movie Clerks, Kevin Smith's movie, is an amazing cult classic. It did about $4 million in the box office. What happened with us, which is, has nothing to do with who we are or what we did, we caught a, a cultural wave. And our box office was $46 million. We did another 130 on DVD. And... What happened with the movie? Oh, sorry, Tim Finnegan. Tim Finnegan's uh, commenting on my numbers. Are they off? Those are the numbers. I'm sure they are. You know, my cat, um, which is who I wrote my kid's book about, his name is Jericho. He very often will walk across the screen or <laughs> some sort of noise. So I get it. The The pets have to comment. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, Tim's usually pretty chill and then he's got, he's got beef. Um, so, so the movie had the experience that you've just described. 
somebody took ownership of the movie and showed it to somebody else who took ownership. So it became a zeitgeist movie. We hit a cultural movement where Hollywood had had too many movies about the pretty person, mm. the person who takes their glasses off in the last minute and you find out they were good looking the whole time. And we had done something that was 100% different than that. And the, the, the fates aligned, which made Napoleon happen. And that's allowed me to do everything else that I've enjoyed and been proud of in my career since. What a beautiful springboard into the rest of your career. Yeah, I guess. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> well, I want to know what it's like bringing someone's words to life on the big screen. Like, what is that like from your perspective and from your point of view? Film, I think, is the most collaborative of all art forms. Um, you you have to bring in so many different disciplines and so many people who are so much better than you at every single one. And that's incredibly humbling, especially when you come in with the producer role. Like the job of the producer is to be the boss. We are the first to turn the lights on in the production office. We find the money. We shape the screenplay, hire director, actors. We manage the production, get all the resources for it. We supervise the edit. We uh, then put it out in the studio and we cut checks, hopefully, if the movie's profitable. So I haven't turned the lights off on Napoleon yet. And it's been <laughs> years. And uh, at every stage, you say, okay, I have this faith in this, this script that this writer wrote words in that are more interesting than the ones I would have written. I have faith in this director, who is also the writer, who has a vision for this that I can't see second by second. I need a composer. The, the creative edict for the score in Napoleon Jared said to our composer, John Swihart, who did one of my student films at USC, he said, all right, this is like a battle of the bands with Burt Bacharach in a church organ. And he's just going for it. And John's like, I'm on. And I never would have thought that. So when you see a script, it's a blueprint. And the words are an important part of it. But just as important are all of the blocks of direction above it that are telling me what the locations are, what the animals are, all that stuff. And then the language of the character itself then you hand that to the cast and you hope they elevate it uh and and often they do when you start going into books especially the books that i've written that flips almost a hundred percent where the words are carrying the character and the words are carrying the structure of the scene i work with illustrators because i can't draw a line with a ruler <laughs> and it's so fun for me to kick those words over to an illustrator who can knock them up a notch that's yeah, very fulfilling. And I will say that I've made 10 movies, one of which people have heard of. Uh, that one, some people like. And it's been wonderful to run into people who are like, I saw that movie, or I saw 12 Dogs of Christmas, or stuff like that, or I see it on TV, and I'm like, oh, or like Napoleon stuff appears in yard sales around the world, like this lunchbox and stuff like that. That's super cool. But the first time I got this copy of Hoarder the Hoarder, and I had a physical book in my hand. Mm -hmm. admittedly there were eight pallets of them coming in but just this one and now we've got seven books seven titles in that series each time it's the same fulfillment of saying this is a physical thing and i've done muffle your snuffle and marlon mcdougall's magical night and i just finished the super ultra mega special super special guest and got illustrations back on that one which is a choose your own adventure i'm really excited about oh love those kinds of books yeah yeah i'm not smart enough to write them so i hope it's good <laughs> They're, but, they're, difficult. <laughs> they're great, but the same level of fulfillment, which to me is greater than the highest level of fulfillment from making a movie. I will agree. I don't have my children's book out just yet. Um, and maybe by the time this is posted, it will be, we'll insert something if it is. 
Okay guys, popping in really quickly because yes, Jericho the Journalism Kitty is officially published. It is on Amazon. You guys can check it out. I talked about it in the season two preview. I will also link it here again in the show notes because again, I did this interview with Sean a couple of months ago before I had gotten the book published. So I thought I'd insert a little thing as I said I would when I did the interview. So here you go. Here's the insert. But I, I did get a physical copy of it, you know, kind of going through um, getting that printed and making sure all the specs were right. And yeah, there's nothing quite like having that in your hands. And I love that you kind of transitioned from the movie aspect into, you know, being now an author or a writer, which actually is kind of the perfect segue because we were chatting earlier about like, what is an author? Because you said you don't really consider yourself to be. Um, so talk with me more about that. I think that's so interesting. And I'm going to go stop my cat from trying to get into the cupboard. <laughs> oh, no, he's done now. Um, I He sits among my potatoes. I don't know why. No. But... <laughs> I love everything about Jericho. And I can't wait to see the book about him and the potatoes. It's going to be amazing. You know, it's called Jericho the Journalism Kitty to teach kids and the adults that will read with them about journalism. But I'm going to have to fit the potatoes in there somewhere because people think that is the craziest thing. Um, that's the only reason they think that is because it is in <laughs> fact the craziest thing. I can think of nothing that would be less interesting to a cat than a potato. <laughs> and why he does it, I don't know. Maybe it's the plot. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, no. But anyway, coming back to um, being an author, you know, because I, I talk with so many people that I ask them, did you want to be an author? What does that mean? And, you know, they just say it's, it's telling stories or putting their thoughts onto paper. But for you, what does that mean? I hold the word author in really high respect and I don't, I don't, I don't know at what point I would become one. And I, I've started to think down the checklist of like, what, what would, the, what would make me feel like I'm an author? Is it an award? Is it a massive publisher taking me out? Is it owning a sports coat with leather patches on the elbows <laughs> pontificating at a university made of bricks? Like, I don't, I don't really know the way I define myself and I've finally become comfortable in this title after 20 years, is a storyteller. And each story kind of requires its own medium. The story that needed to be told with Napoleon Dynamite had to have visuals, it had to have music, it had to have interesting characters, it had to be done as a movie. Um, stories that I tell about you know chickens and growing up in South Dakota and <laughs> that kind of stuff, the, the behind the scenes on Napoleon, like the cow being late to work that shut us down for a minute and how coming from Edgemont was the only solution I had to fix that problem and it worked perfectly. Mm -hmm. All that kind of stuff, the format for that is on a stage. So I get, I did a TEDx and I get to do a lot of keynote speaking and do um, verbal storytelling, which is fun. The story behind Porter, Rebecca Swift is the creator of this character and she's got two daughters, Logan and Quinn. And Logan is like the most fastidious, like valedictorian together girl. And her room was always perfectly pristine. And uh, Rebecca went in one day to get something and she opened her nightstand. And there in this perfectly organized room was this nightstand jammed full of candy, had like Christmas candy and Halloween candy and East like peeps were molding and it was just jammed. And she's like, my daughter's a hoarder. <laughs> And she went over and grabbed some black, uh, white, red, and yellow felt. And she cut out the shape of what would become Porter. And she just did this and called it Porter the Hoarder. I knew Rebecca and saw that. And I was like, what is, what is that? She says, oh, it's Porter the Hoarder. 
And Miranda, it's, you've had the experience. I think most of your listeners have the lightning moment where I heard that character's voice and I saw that character's attitude. And not only that, I knew that it would be kind of an activity book. So, so Porter's heavily influenced by Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, which I read with my producing partner, son, Liam. And in that book, page one, bus driver's walking off. It's kind of a crayon design for all characters. Bus driver's walking off. says, listen, I got to go for a minute. I'll be back. But whatever happens, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. Page two, pigeon head appears. And for the next 24, it's the pigeon trying different tactics direct to reader through the fourth wall. Like, I'd let you drive the bus. I'll give you $5. What if we're best friends? Then, then you'd let me drive the bus. And Liam is losing his mind, yelling, no, 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 at this book. Then my sister was teaching second grade in Sturgis, and I saw what happened with her kids in reading time and the I Spy series. Mm. And walk in on that looking find. And I was like, wow, Porter could be both of those things. So in book one, Porter has to clean her room. So a big, meaning a parent, sibling, adult at home, sits down to read with a little, and they go into Porter's garbage dump of a room and they have to help her find her collection of 10 snotty handkerchiefs and they count them out and find them. And then it asks the question, should she keep all 10? And the reader's like, yes, no. Then you get the answer. And then Porter loses her mind. Yes, no. And this slowly works down until she cleans her room where she finds a gold coin worth three truckloads candy, which she then immediately takes back and fills her room right back up to the top. <laughs> When we cracked this structure, it opened all the worlds. And in the inside cover of the book are the 64 books that will come from the series. There are seven now. Wow. In book, yeah, in, it's job security. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In book two, she's on a nature hike and you help her find flatulent flying fish and, and crazy things like that. In book three, she's building a pizza. Last time she made a pizza, it was 200 feet tall and had bullfrogs and tires on it. But she wants to make the perfect pizza for Pappy's perfect pizza party for his birthday and then book three she's trick-or-treating in the monster neighborhood where she dresses up like all the monsters to try to work them for the best stuff and yeah and the new one just came out hospital this book came about in collaboration with a child psychologist who talked about how kids are scared of what they don't understand in the hospital so hmm. each of the rooms where she's finding used band-aids and and bedpans and things there are different areas in the hospital that will familiarize the kid with what those regions are and kind of give them a positive spin on it. And then okay. um, magic just arrived. We got three pallets of magic last week and I haven't even seen it yet. That's amazing. Pallets, pallets of books. That just sounds like something that I think I would cry over. <laughs> uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I've learned, I've learned, well, I guess this is possibly a segue to the story of creating Napoleon Dynamite is a bunch of people from outside that industry who angled their way into the center of it and sent that movie out to studios and said, we need a million dollars to make this movie. And word back was, this movie is unreadable. We don't know who you are. <laughs> Literally a quote was, we can't imagine watching that guy for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh, I don't know if John knows that actually. Um, well, hey, if John- here we go. If, if he wants to listen to my podcast, first of all, I will die. Second <laughs> of all, um, now he'll know. <laughs> I'll send it to him soon. Um, so we had received the hard no, but we knew that nobody was going to give it to us. So we went off and made it 
on our own for about $400,000. And then we sold it to the studio for $5 million, the same studio that said it was unreadable and they couldn't watch John. And at the sales meeting, we did not mention that comment because, you know, it doesn't matter. Never forget what they've done to you, but never let them know you remember is the theme in Hollywood. For sure. When I put Porter together and finished it and Rebecca had illustrated it and we liked it, I sent it into some contacts I had in the publishing. And the word came back, um, we can't publish it because it's 70 pages long. And this is a valuable lesson. When I had page numbers on it, parents would pick it up at book fairs and they'd flip to the back and see 70 pages and drop it as though it was on fire. Mm. When I pull long the- for a kid's bedtime story. Exactly. Like we don't have two hours for this. Yeah. When I pulled the pages off, they'd open it up and see that this page has one word. It says no. Mm-hmm. It says one word. It says yes. And this page has three words. And that concern went away. The reason they wouldn't print it at 70 pages had nothing to do with the story length. It had everything to do with the manufacturing costs. Mm. And they're operating in no more than 46 pages or 32 pages. And so I then learned international manufacturing and international import law. Right about that time, I met with Jamie Tennis at the United Way of the Black Hills, who had just started, just started, like two days before started Black Hills Reads with Kayla Klein. And we created a program, which we can go into if you want to. But I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> back to you, Miranda. No, you're doing great. I mean, everybody's here to listen to you. I'm I'm just here to keep the conversation going. Um, but I want to know, because you, you kind of mentioned at the beginning, like what your life story was. But did you know that you wanted to go into movies? Did you know that you wanted to be an author someday? Like, are these things that as the kid with the chicken on your shoulder that you knew you wanted to do? Or how did these kind of come to fruition for Sean? These, my dog's trying to dig a hole through. (laughs) Hey, Tim, probably not that plan. Why don't you chill out? Thanks, buddy. (laughs) So I think the thing that put me on the path to telling stories was being really bad at sports, Mm. like really bad at sports. I tried out for and did every single um, athletic event that Edgemont offered, and I failed publicly and often painfully at every single one. I I was, I wrestled in in my freshman year, I was six foot two and I wrestled the 130 pound weight class. And um, I I only lost one match my entire wrestling career because I only wrestled one match my entire wrestling career. And JC Woodward, who would go on to be a champion bull rider, pinned me and broke all the fingers on my left hand in 32 seconds flat. And it was the nicest thing anyone has ever done to me because it's, I had no business wrestling. So my identity kind of came from a different thing and that was storytelling. And I was all in student council and stuff. And first time I ran for student council, my sixth grade year, I was running for treasurer and I wrote this very well architected speech about how great I'd be as a treasurer. But then Christy Littell got up with one of those like 14 inch by four inch boom boxes Mm -hmm. and just hit play. And it was, she was beatboxing and she just rapped for like five seconds and sixth grade in sixth grade and landslide defeated me. Like I got one vote and probably it was me. (laughs) And I realized that entertaining over accurate was of power. And so I would do student council just because. I got to get up and do stand-up comedy and start storytelling. And that's really where the roots of it took hold. That's awesome. So were you an avid reader as a kid? Was that kind of a big thing for you? I think that one of the, the reasons I'm so hesitant to call myself an author is because I wasn't an avid reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
generally like reading. And I think we'll talk about kind of the uh, common background and why people don't read. But my dad, amazing guy, outlaw biker. So we weren't sitting down to read together. And I remember one time he I was probably in fourth grade. He came up and handed me the Chronicles of Narnia and is like, these are great books. You should read them. And they didn't have pictures and they didn't, and it was pretty thick text. Uh, and so I didn't really know how to access it. Mm-hmm. And I would read mom, but she had really entertaining short stuff. So on my own, my imagination was fulfilled by movies, which is why most of my books are really visually driven. We'll get into Marlon McPeople's Magical Night, which is set at the 1880s train. And that entire book is done as storyboards. It's a really, the, the design edict behind Porter is that we will never draw anything that a child can't draw. Her face is a cookie and her hair is bananas and her dress is spaghetti stripes. And like, that's what that is. Marlin is a Kincaid series. It's really painterly and, and just so different. But in both cases, they're heavily, heavily visual. So with that being said, not an avid reader, as many people aren't. You know, there are so many people that struggled with reading, especially growing up for some reason or another. But as you've kind of grown and realized maybe the importance of reading in your life, do you have a favorite book? That's something I always like to ask people is if they have a favorite book. I think my favorite books, like my favorite movies, are on constant rotation. And right now I'm really in just reread uh, All My Friends Are Dead, which is a really great short children's book. I love it. And uh, it's hilarious. And Mo Willems is my favorite author. I reread his Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Haven't heard of that one, but hey, I loved dinosaurs as a kid, so I probably would have been into it. (laughs) Oh yeah, there are three dinosaurs and their friend from Sweden, who's also a dinosaur, and uh, they're going to go on a walk, but first they're going to make a lot of chocolate pudding because they're really in the mood for a chocolate pudding filled little girl and they they leave loudly and then here comes goldilocks trying the pudding that's too hot pudding that's too cold and they're all kind of looming around and it's the story of her eventual escape but i like that woody rye thing and i reread hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy every time i need to sit down and crack a, a tone i have a hard time writing in my own voice marlon marlon's in my own voice and it's the hardest book that i've ever written porter i saw that book and saw her voice and I can emulate it. Um, Muffle Your Snuffle, which is a book written for my sister when she moved to kindergarten. And she's like, none of these kids can sneeze and they're blowing snot on everything. So I was sitting at the Thanksgiving table. I was like, you just need to tell them to muffle their snuffle. And we all stop. Like that is a book. So that I could write in the voice of my cow teacher character and my little moose buddy who has a sneezing issue and can't figure it out and is blowing goobers on everybody. So those those put themselves together really easy, but writing in my own voice is challenging. So tell me a little bit more about writing in your own voice and your book about the 1880 train, which there's probably some listeners who have no idea what the 1880 train is because it's very South Dakota, <laughs> Western South Dakota. <laughs> I mean, we're here on the podcast, which means I absolutely need to get a copy of the book to show you the pictures in. That will help everyone. <laughs> you so, know, I like to take clips every once in a while. Um, and this one's been highly visual. So maybe we'll <laughs> have to have to post a few. Okay, that, that sounds good. So the 1880s train is the longest running tourist train, I believe, in America. And um, the Warder family has it. And they've had it for some time. Meg Warder is running it uh, now. And I was talking to Meg. And she said, you know, every year, train and Christmas is Polar Express. 
And it's really expensive to license Polar Express, but it just it resonates in everyone's mind. She's like, I wish I had a Christmas train book. And on the drive home, I was thinking, okay, Polar Express, they ride to the North Pole for Christmas. Like, what's cooler than riding a train to the North Pole? It's flying one. So that was the hook. And in front of the 1880s train sits the old number seven, which is this classic steam train style train. It's not on the tracks, but I was like, how can we give that thing a bit of lore? So I wrote this book, Marlon McFuel's Magical Night, about a little boy named Marlon who's nestled at the base of Mount Rushmore. That's where he lives. And it's Christmas Eve and he's waiting for his grandpa, who's a little bit crazy, but always said that on you know, his 12th Christmas, he's going to get a gift he'll never forget. His grandpa shows up and he's always wanted a toy train, but his parents won't let him have one because his grandpa's nuts and works on the 1880s train. So just doesn't happen. Um, so grandpa shows up with a long package and he's convinced it's a train with tracks, but in fact, it's just this scarf with weird stitching at the end. It's just like grandpa's and grandpa's like, all right, let's go. And it's midnight and it's blizzarding. So he throws them in the truck and he's like, what's going on? And they end up at the 1880s train. This image, we did a CAD, a 3D CAD of all of the buildings at the train station. And when I was working with the illustrator who was from Columbia, South America, we would talk about it in terms of camera angles. Like mm. move the cat back, give me a wide here. Let's swing down for a cowboy shot of my grandpa, stuff like that. So I could speak film to him. So they get there, trains coming out pretty quick. They hear, you know, the, they see the snowflakes freeze in the air. They hear the jingle jangle and grandpa yells out, he's coming in. And they uncover a huge mound of this magical glowing hay. And they put it out in a big long landing strip. And it's like, what's that? Grandpa hands him a handful of it and he gets warm immediately. Turns out this is the magic hay that lets reindeer fly. And Hill City is in the middle of the trip around the entire world. So the reindeer come to refuel on magic hay. And while they do that, Santa jumps on the 1880s train and he delivers presents up the valleys and around while they're refueling. So Marlon gets to go. He finds out his grandpa is the engineer and is part of this Christmas Eve crew and it's nuts. So he gets to go in and start riding the train and Santa morphs into train engineer Santa and Santa starts going ahead of him he's going up the smokestack in his like magic golden smoke stuff that's my family home it's fun to bury you know bits of really? you know, personal history in the books that you make anyway Santa's getting ahead of him so Marlon's like oh I'm trying to shovel coal as fast as he can and he has an idea and he throws that magic hay into the boiler and the train starts rumbling and it lifts itself up off the tracks and pretty quick it's flying through the air completely out of control and grandpa's freaking out and marlon has to figure it out so he takes his scarf off and he wraps it around all the dials and he wraps it around all the levers and he puts his feet back and starts pulling left and right he's starting to get it under control as it's headed straight for the faces of mount Rushmore. oh wow then he gets it and santa comes back on and is like what is going on <laughs> different and uh the train tracks are going down a hill marlon's got to land perfectly or the train will derail so he barrel rolls the train so he can come in at exactly the right angle and in the last moment releases all the steam and gets back and everybody's saved and and santa says <laughs> I, I feel weird if i'm like reading my own writing but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't even have to read it he looks at marlon marlon thinks he's in trouble because he just flew the train right so, He's like, oh, in all of my many, many long days, I've met all sorts of children with curious ways. And I've known around the world a great trainsman or two, but a boy who flies trains, I know only you. So let's meet here next year and for years down the road. Like your grandpa before, you're our secret, you'll hold. And he's brought in to the Christmas Eve crew, and now he's the boy who flies trains. 
And throughout the story, different things are offered to him. And he always backs off. He's like, I don't know if I can do that. I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. And everybody responds like grandpa's like, I'd be a crazy old man in a rickety old truck if that's all I wanted to be, but I choose to be something more. Mm-hmm. When Santa invites him in, he's like, I can't do that. He's like, I'd just be an old, old man with a big white beard if that's all I chose to be, but I choose to be something more. So in the end, he becomes the boy who flies trains. He chooses to be something. I love that choosing to be something more. I think that's I think that's a beautiful message and kind of a beautiful message for anybody who might be listening to um, who's maybe trying to become an author or find their passion for reading or whatever it may be. I love that. I, I think that's a really powerful message. Um, and I think that moves right into us talking maybe a little bit more big picture about kind of literacy statistics. So as I mentioned to you, the three main pillars of my initiative that I started while competing with Miss America are access, education, and representation. Um, and you with Porter the Hoarder started the Porter Project. So I'd love to know a little bit more about that and kind of how that fits into, you know, literacy and helping increase literacy rates. Sure. So, so I had a project that I created in Rapid City called the 12 Days of Pizza. And it's a food security project based on the 12 Dogs of Christmas, based on 12 Days of Christmas. <laughs> and I found out about uh, a group of 25 students at Robbinsdale, talked to the teacher the day before Christmas break, like, are your kids excited for break? And she, she paused, which I thought was strange. And she said, actually, no, half of them are terrified. Because half of that 25-person class depended on the school for lunch, for breakfast. I learned about the backpack programs and the summer programs and all these amazing things that schools do for food security. But the 12 days of Christmas break were the only days of the year that the school was completely shut down. Mm -hmm. They didn't know where they would get consistent meals. So within 24 hours, Pizza Ranch partnered with Black Hills Community Bank as this like local thing to provide 12 families, 12 consistent meals over the Christmas break. That then scaled, and now we do about 50,000 meals nationally. But anyway, I was on your excellent news station uh, (laughs) promoting that, and I met with Jamie Tennis, who was there talking about the United Way and what they do. I didn't really understand what they were about. We went off to have lunch, and she was teaching me what the United Way even is. I thought it was like the Red Cross, where people in United Way t-shirts show up at a devastated site and help everybody. And she's like, no, we're a fund and we identify needs in the community and we serve those needs. But there are some national initiatives. They had just changed to focus on early childhood wellness. They had three pillars of wellness. One was physical health. The next was reading level. Mm-hmm. So she taught me that only 32% of elementary school students in the United States can read at grade level proficiency, can read at grade level proficiency. And she taught me that kids learn to read in kindergarten first, second, but they have to read to learn in order to do third, fourth, and beyond. And if you haven't mastered reading by second grade, the fall off is so devastating that it's possible to correlate prison capacity planning with third grade reading levels. Mm-hmm. And that was a jaw dropper. Had I had no idea. And then the third pillar of their wellness initiative was family engagement. And she taught me that families, if they're dual income, then parents are off working. If they're single parent, two jobs, then your schedule is even tighter. And Americans have a set schedule. You wake up, eat breakfast, schoolwork, come back, TV, some homework, dinner, bed. And she said there wasn't a time that people weren't on screens and coming together. That was fading out of culture and it was having a massive impact on kids. Well, I had just written Porter and I was like, well, Porter's, Porter could help that. And we researched what the four uh, impediments are to reading at home. 
I thought the first would be cost. Like the 12 days of pizza, the reason these kids aren't getting food is because there's a money problem. Mm -hmm. I thought it would be cost. These are expensive, like $17. But actually the number one thing that gets in the way of reading at home is time. The number two thing is access to books that kids are excited to read. So many are offered by schools, but if it's not Marvel or Disney and it doesn't have a brand identity, hard to get excited about that. Right. Number three is a parent knowing how to read with their child. If they weren't read to, they don't really have the skill to pass that on. And the fourth thing is, is cost. Books are expensive. So we sat down and we're like, all right, let's hit it. How do we do time? Well, Porter reads in under 10 minutes, about seven. Now the secret to Porter is that it invites rereading and rereading. So it can expand into whatever time you have. But when a parent sits down to read it, they don't do the, like you said, this can't be a bedtime book. It's 70 pages long. It knocks through in 10 minutes. So great. We had time figured out. Access to books that kids were excited to read. We created launch day programs where all the students in our 20 school region got the book on the same day and a teacher got up in front of the, the class. We have a book that projects on the smart board. Uh, he or she gathers the group right in front of the board and one student at a time gets up to point out the hidden objects, but the other kids behind, it's not a raise your hand and wait to be called on. They go nuts and they're yelling at where the stuff is and the first student's pointing it out and they go through, should you keep it? Should you get rid of it? And at the end, teacher says, did you, did you enjoy Porter? And fortunately they say yes. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, would you like your own Porter book? Yeah, well, you get a book and you get a book and you get a book and every like the Oprah moment. Everybody Oprah gets moment. a book. <laughs> the Oprah moment. And they're like, bah, and I've been in the room. I've been in the room of a thousand kids and they're like, oh, this is the best day. And then the teacher says, but there is homework. Miranda, what does a first grader know about homework? And yet it's like a wet blanket has been dropped on that room. And they're just like, no, the best thing just became the worst thing. <laughs> yeah. And she says, but it's not homework for you. It's homework for your parents. Oh, and I'm sure they love that. The excitement of the book is nothing compared to what happened. <laughs> and then we have this like massive parent homework document that's just a cartoon explaining what Porter is and how Porter works and that you have to read together. It has the box, the no distraction box for the cell phone. But like, yeah, Miranda, they're, I watched them start rocking back and forth on the chairs in an auditorium till the chairs started to loosen up on the floor. It was nuts. And so... That's the, the third issue, a parent not knowing how to read with their child. We explain the homework is for you guys to read together, but listen, you're the teacher. You know how Porter works. You know what her voice is. You know how to find the stuff. So you have to teach your parent how to read when you get home. And then uh, the fourth pillar, cost. Schools buy books like Porter for 20% off retail. I thought they would have bought them at 20% of retail. But the discount's pretty small. So on a $17 mm -hmm. book, you're still cutting a check for like 15 bucks. So I built a publishing company and I self-manufacture these books and I can bring them in at a really small cost. And our partnership uh, with Black Hills Reads, they would pick up the tab. So these books could be offered to students for free. We did the first year of the program and did our studies, our efficacy studies. And uh, seven, 97%, 97% of parents reported that the book came out the second those kids were home. 83% uh, reported a repeat reading of the book. The cycle would be read it, read it again, try to read it a third time. Parent hides the book to have dinner. <laughs> and I knew that was going to happen. But what I didn't know was going to happen happened after dinner. And that was the students started to read it to the parents. And they're getting words wrong, but they're hitting sight words that weren't there before. And they're taking initiative. So that was causing engagement and it was causing interest in reading. And then 
about 62%, I think, maybe a little bit less, uh, of those who reported repeat readings reported that other family members joined the reading. And of those, half were people who had never joined in on group reading before ever. That's the teenager over on the phone that's like, what are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. Starts to read as well. So we had found a crack in the schedule and we put a thing in there that caused repeat reading. And that became a machine that teachers could use to send other books home in. And now there was a bit of a habit. Um, and we were able to address those four pillars. We expanded from the 20 schools here in the Black Hills uh, across the state. We teamed with the South Dakota Statewide Family Engagement Center as a new initiative, and we were kind of their calling card. Like, you haven't heard of us, but we're going to give your kids free books. And then for four years, every student, every first grade student in the state of South Dakota receives a Porter book. It's now expanding to North Dakota, Montana, Utah. Um, I just hired three outreach specialists. to. It's been reactive. People have been calling us for them. Now we're going to proactively go out. And now the Family Engagement Center has changed its initiative from engagement in the home to causing parents to actively, supportively, positively call the school and say, how can I help? So I wrote a book called The Super Ultra Mega Special, Super Special Guest starring Tim Finnegan. And that's a choose your own adventure that will teach parents how they can offer help if they don't have money, if they don't have time, whatever they don't have. And uh, yeah, help help the SDSFEC build its amazing initiative that they're kicking butt on. I love that somebody presented you with the this problem, you know, this problem of of lack of literacy and this issue that we're seeing. And you were like, okay, let's fix that. Because I think a lot of people hear that and it it can feel overwhelming. What do mm-hmm. I do? How do I change that? How do I I make sure that reading is important because for some people that just makes sense. Of course, reading is important, but for others, it's not, especially if that wasn't kind of a core or a fundamental thing for you. Um, So I love that you guys were, or that you were presented with it and you said, how do we fix this? How do we change this? What can we do, especially with our book in general? Um, I think that was, I think that's hugely impactful and it clearly is. I mean, it's expanding to other states. That's great. But I think that yeah, I'm really glad that you pointed that out. I lived in Los Angeles for 15 years and there are so many problems. I mean, homelessness is insane and it's so big. Just like you said, it's so big that it's overwhelming. I couldn't figure out how to make a dent. And I knew that there were lots of foundations that were trying, but I couldn't wrap my head around it. Mm-hmm. So pizza was, there are 12 kids, let's help them. This project was, these are Black Hill schools and here's the problem, let's help them. It just happened to be built in a way that was scalable. And, and that's been really the the great and exciting success. And also, I think the fact that I wasn't excited about reading growing up was helpful in that I want to make sure there's no education patina about our materials, not to knock education. But I remember getting the worksheets that were recycled newspaper print or the book that's recycled newspaper print. And it's you just have this feeling of, oh, and Porter, everything about Porter is high quality and colorful. And in fact, a call that comes into schools frequently on the day of the release, our parents calling to say, listen, my kids stole a book. <laughs> that's that's theirs. They get that for free. That's your book. Are you sure? Like, this isn't the kind of book that's free that comes home to us. This is, this is something different. Mm-hmm. Porter is soft cover, and that was conscious. I thought we'd do it as a hardcover to make it feel like even more quality. But I learned that backpack friendly is what it's all about. And those backpacks are small, so it bends and fits, and it can be cleaned with Windex and Clorox wipes, and it's it's meant to be beaten up and tossed around. Meant to be used, meant to be read. And I love that you used your perspective because 
and there's nothing wrong with this, of course. I'm, I was an avid reader growing up, and now I, I hope to become an author, a storyteller. Um, and for so many authors, they were avid readers. But I like that you used your perspective of, I wasn't. So how can I help kind of change that? Um, it's, I just think that's a beautiful thing. And as I mentioned, you know, my focus is access, education, and representation. And you already, you know, touched on access and education pieces, but I kind of want to dive into representation if that's all right with you. Yeah. Talk about um, what do you think is the importance of having representation in kind of media as a whole? For me, I'm talking literacy, but you also work with all kinds of forms of media. So what is the importance of having that representation? That, mm. It's a big question. It is. And th these are all big, big topics and big ideas. But I loved how you, you know, took the time to really think through what you were pre being presented with, you know, in terms of, of literacy in our area. So it's it's a big question. It's a big topic. It's but important question. And I always preface this question by saying, look at me. I'm a six and a half foot tall white guy. And I teach at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts now, the place that I went to school. And I teach independent filmmaking, which is really a way that if you haven't made a movie before, you can get your voice out there. And the first thing I say is I get up in front of this group, which over the last dozen years that I've taught there has changed in profile dramatically. And we have students of, of all background and color and culture and sexual orientation and gender identity. And all of it is there in my 24 students. And the first speech I give is, hi, I'm, I'm going to teach you about independent film. I'm not going to teach you the history of independent film. I'm not going to teach you what independent films are good or bad. I'm not going to teach you the quality of an independent film because I believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I recognize that I see the world as a tall white guy from a town in South Dakota. I'm going to teach you how to put your voice out. I'm going to teach you how to moxie through and make whatever the heck you're going to make because I'm not going to be the arbiter of what is good and bad. When I came into books... We ran into some interesting stuff. A slight pushback on Porter is that she's a white girl. And I don't mean a Caucasian human being. I mean, this character is made without pigment. It is a white, a black and white character. Mm -hmm. And so that put her in a category. And I was very proud that she was female uh, as a female lead. When I came into Muffle Your Snuffle and thought about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I did two things. First off, the main characters are not human. And that allows any sort of latitude you want. And all the secondary characters are also not human. There's aliens and monsters and all kinds of stuff. But we have human characters interspersed. And after I finished the book, I then, which is really inconvenient for the illustrator, by the way, once I got done with the book, I'm like, all right, so diversity, equity, inclusion. Great, let's make sure that we've got a child in a wheelchair. And okay, where's our child with glasses? We've got to make sure that a kid with glasses can see themselves. And then we kind of kept going through all of, for lack of a better phrase, the checklist and saying, okay, do we have this? I knew that I had different races and ethnicities and things like that built in, uh, but but also little things like, can someone in a wheelchair see themselves and can someone who's wearing glasses see themselves? And, and the character itself, the, the cow character, the teacher character who's so happy, good luck figuring out a gender on that character because <laughs> I don't know and I designed it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So it, it isn't even part of the conversation because it's an odd issue. And we were coming into a situation where masks were everywhere and people were getting mad about it. So figuring out how to navigate the politics of that mm -hmm. by just subtly putting it over there. And you, if you want to see it, you see it. And if you don't see it, you don't see it, but it's there. Took away the political charge. That's how 
I've dealt with diversity, equity, inclusion. And now I'm doing it on super, ultra, mega, special, super special guest. And the way I've dealt with it is brilliant. <laughs> well, very excited to see uh, <laughs> what what that looks like. But I, I appreciate you, you know, diving into that and talking specifically about diversity, equity, and inclusion because they're important and they're important things for you know, especially you and I to think about, especially as authors. Um, but for everybody who's listening, knowing that when you pick up a book, that that's something to be conscious of, picking up books that have representation so that you experience different people and different cultures and different ideas, but also so that a child who is reading this book can see themselves represented so that every child can have that and know that they can share their story someday in whatever way they choose. Um, representation, I think, may be that and education and access, I mean, they're my three pillars for a reason, but in order to have those, I think you have to have the representation piece. They all intertwine, but all I very important. <laughs> I completely agree. And and as you, as you work up the process of getting your book published, what it feels like is you are being judged and your material is being judged. And it's a thumbs up, thumbs down on whether or not you or your material are good enough. But when you get inside media, and start making movies and working with studios and stuff, what you quickly realize is that that's not what's happening at all. What's happening is fear. It's fear of spending a lot of money. Mm. And CYA, it's an edict in the finance industry that has grown in, in film. Like you can make the movie about Slinky and the Slinky movie can fail and you won't get fired because you can say, it's Slinky. Everybody knows Slinky. Everybody would go see a Slinky movie. But if you make the unbearable lightness of being and it's this interesting character-driven thing and it doesn't work well you stretched your neck for an original concept and that's happening in the publishing world too like i said the reason they shut down porter was not because of the content of the book it was because of the finances involved in the link and it had porter been about iron man and black widow that wouldn't have been a problem so you kind of find the different angle to go into it i would like to tell you about the super ultra mega special super special guest book can you yes tell yeah. us about it <laughs> I'm so excited about it. If if this if you have a first grader, dear listeners, or will in the next four years, or are first, a first grader potentially, or are a first grader, <laughs> cease and desist this podcast. Thank you for your time here. We've enjoyed uh, speaking with you today. Um, <laughs> the book is going to go to every first grader in South Dakota every year for the next four years and perhaps beyond, but definitely the next four. So here's what's up. The Statewide Family Engagement Center said, you know, we run into this problem where parents are only calling schools when they're mad about stuff. And often parents aren't engaging with schools because they've kind of had a negative experience in going to school there. And so they don't really know what to do or how to do it. And so, and in fact, the whole conversation we were having was about how we were going to wind up Porter, which I'm now migrating to a different foundation. Mm -hmm. And as I heard their problems, I was like, what if I wrote you a new book that that did that because Porter, you mentioned that, you know, I wasn't an avid reader. How do I make it exciting? To me, Porter is a game that happens to be a book. Mm -hmm. It happens to be a game. So it's like, how can we gamify this? And how can we still speak to that same excited group of first graders and let that flourish in the families? So, so Morgan von Hayden, who's a director at SDS FEC, was like, yeah, we should make it a choose your own adventure. And the second she said it, I knew two things. One, I didn't know how to do that. And two, she was absolutely right. And so I called my producing partner, Doc Wyatt, who he did some animated series for Netflix that are choose your own adventure animated series that are coming out. 
And I was like, how did you card this? How did, <laughs> how did you take a story point? And I read a whole bunch of Choose Your Own Adventures. What I quickly found was Choose Your Own Adventures terminate. If you choose this and your character goes this way, they die. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to come back into the story. And I was like, that's weak. That's some weak stuff. <laughs> we, need, we need to figure out fractals. And Doc had to go through all these Choose Your Own Adventures that not only came back into the story for that episode, but then fit a bigger episode, series arc. And then had to choose your own adventure in the next episode that came back to the series arc. And wow. so how to do that? So I wrote Super Ultra Mega Special, Super Special Guest. It, it opens up on a school. There's a text bubble above it. And the text bubble says, what? Coming here? You're kidding. And then we cut into the school. It's principal's office. And Principal Finnegan, Tim Finnegan, my dog, is there. He's on the phone. And he's like, we've never had a special guest that special. We have to have a super special party for a super special guest. And he puts the word out into all the classrooms. And the teachers are, octopus is teaching in the underwater classroom. And alien is teaching in the science classroom. And human gym teachers in the gym classroom. Tim is on all the screens and over the the loudspeakers. He's like, attention, everybody. We have a super special guest coming and we have to throw the super specialist party and we're going to need so much help. Put the word out. And then we go into the homes of all the different characters. So the crab family gets a note saying, whoa, I wonder who this guest is going to be. They're so super special. The school's asking us to bake treats. I don't know if baking underwater is the best plan. And then to bake underwater, choose A. To offer something else, choose B. So... Mm -hmm. A, you're underwater and like dough is floating and there's a whirlpool and it's just catastrophe and then that brings you back to try again and if you go to b they're like oh you're not so great at baking but do you need help cutting out letters for banners or whatever and you choose that and they're like or the porcupine family that's can you help us blow up balloons they're like we don't know if that's the best plan or the elephant family can you bring cups and plates and stuff and we're like well money's a little tight right now but we could try to make some out of mud or we could suggest something else you make them out of mud in this country or something else well do you need help blowing up balloons yeah elephants are great at blowing up balloons. halfway through tim gets another phone call i'm sorry principal finnegan gets another phone call. <laughs> and he's very like <laughs> very important so, uh, that, another that guest is even more special than the first guest that is a super ultra mega special guest this has to be a super ultra mega special party goes back out and we go through and finally get everybody on on deck to get all the stuff together and the page before the end is all the different characters and students the giraffe is looking out the window like they're here and was like do you want to meet the super ultra mega special guests and you flip it to meet the super ultra mega special super special guests and on the back cover are two physical mirrors that have been built into the back of the book, a big mirror and a little mirror. And the readers, regardless of their gender, background, color, race, whatever, socioeconomic scale, they are the super ultra mega special guests. Wow. And it comes with, instead of Porter homework, it comes with a ticket for a big, to come have lunch in the lunchroom with a little for free at any time they want. Because... Like Miranda, I've lived in Hollywood for 15 years and I worked in movies and I've been in the room when megawatt movie stars walk in. And sometimes you feel it. Like when George Clooney walks into a restaurant, you you feel a shift. You're like, something's different. Mm -hmm. But nothing compares to the celebrity of the lunchroom when a parent walks in to have lunch with their kid. That was such a mind blower. Like, who is that? Who do they, what are they doing here? They go with them? What's happening? So the SESFEC is creating programs to let the community come in and, and the book itself 
has the community receive requests for stuff from the school and, and proactively offer something that they have. And like Huron is already saying, okay, we have this money for transportation. We didn't know what to do with it. We have unserved community members. We can just go get them and bring them in for those events. And, and I'm already excited. This book, my illustrator contracted dengue fever in Mongolia. And so have that for a sentence. And then uh, <laughs> I had to take care of him and then replace him. Um, with another illustrator and I've just got illustrations Tuesday and we're not quite done and the book has to go to print um, in about two weeks to hit our deadline so it's a little bit of a stressful time here I can imagine thanks for fitting this in Um, that that gave me chills because we were just talking about representation so that's of course the perfect segue you know what you're doing Um, (laughs) but for someone to literally physically see themselves in a book that like I said it just gave me chills when you said that because I I kind of I was like I think I know where this is going but I I didn't know that that's where it was going that you would (laughs) physically see yourself in the book I I love that so much and I can I be a first grader I want a copy (laughs) I'll probably have a couple extras (laughs) I can take care of you that's amazing I available on Amazon (laughs) (laughs) gotta slip that in there right um, thank you so much for this conversation. I've loved that we've gotten the opportunity to get to know you and, and kind of your background and just how it beautifully kind of segued into what you're doing now with Porter. And I'm not even going to try to say the name of the choose your own adventure book. Cause I'm going to get it wrong if I don't have it in front of me, <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's this beautiful continuation. Um, and the fact that you're thinking about, increasing literacy and what are kind of the the things that are holding people back as you're creating these books is hugely impactful and I know you see it um, but I hope that other people understand too just how much of a difference this is going to make for not just a first grader but also the parent that's reading it with them because you're putting in you know two mirrors Um, I just I can't I'm going to say it seven more times it gave me chills I'm so excited to see that book come to fruition yeah so am I Miranda so, so am I. I'm really excited to see that book come to fruition really soon. Uh, yeah, and you know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that I see the impact. I, I see glimpses of it. And they come, like now we do readings all over the place. I read in front of about a thousand students in Ogden when we do the rollout there. And, so, and that's really fun. And then I hear that stuff happens at home, but every once in a while I get a story sent over um, I was talking to Cheryl Barker, who's a teacher. She, she was she grew up in Edgemont, and I knew her family. And we did the Porter Project, and I ended up having a chance to visit her uh, classroom at General Beadle. And um, I said, "How's it going? What's going on?" And she's like, "You know, this last release at the end of the day, everybody's got their books and they're in line and they're excited. And one of our students, little boy, he was over at his cubbyhole and was rolling it up really tight, trying to fit in his cubbyhole. And I said to him, "That's it's your book. You can take it home. It's all right." And he said, Miss Parker, we don't know where we're going to sleep tonight. And I want to keep it safe. Mm. And, I was, and she starts crying. And I'm getting all teary even telling you that story. Mm. I don't know that that exists. I don't, I'm not present in the community in a way that I get to interact with that. So to know that maybe it's going to hit a couple places that I'll never see and never know about, that's, that's a powerful idea. I don't know that there's anything else that I have to ask. Um, is there anything that you think we might have missed? 
that would be important for people to hear? I mean, I'm sure that we could go on and on and on, but. <laughs> no, I think you, I think you know me well enough to know that I'll use a hundred words when only 10 are required. So if you ever, if you ever want to pick it up again in the future, I'm sure that we can continue the conversation, but I'm so excited for what you're doing. And I'm so excited that you're, initiative and your platform is going to go out and you're going to have the opportunity to interact with so many schools. Like that's your job now. That's cool. Yeah, so I'm, cool. I'm very excited. It's kind of the best job ever. So <laughs> pretty great. Yeah. I, and I think that it's important to take a moment because I, I really appreciate that you're putting the spotlight on, you know, your guests, but I think the spotlight needs to be put back on you for a second. Thank I, you. It, it's, it's a big, I had a friend in Utah, her, her brother OD'd and she wanted to get to schools and try to do these talks about drugs and, and no schools would return her phone calls. Cause who's this person who's calling up out of the blue. So she's like, how can I possibly get into all these schools and found out that miss Utah, that's the job. So she went for it, trained, practiced, and came in and she won miss Utah specifically with the goal of being able to drop into those schools. And she's been to pretty much every school in Utah that access is unprecedented and it's it's given to people who can benefit kids and that's that's you so thank you so much for joining us for the page turners podcast incredibly deeply excited for season two so if you feel so inclined please please leave a review share the podcast with someone that you know that you love so we can continue to have these conversations about increasing literacy rates until next week, make sure that you check us out on social media. You can follow me at at Miss America SD. That's on all social media so you can find more information about Page Turners, about my year as Miss South Dakota. Again, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you back here again next week. <laughs>